Hi, I'm Steve, and this is Max. And you're listening to the Mile High Motorheads, your number one podcast for all things automotive. Thank you for joining us for our very first episode. So, being that today is our very first episode, Steve and I would really like to cover some introduction area for both of us about who we are, what we like to do, our automotive background, and what this show is all about. Max, how do you know what you know about cars? Well, Steve, I haven't been in the automotive business a long time, but I have been a tech for almost 10 years. 10 years? That's high school, right? It is high school. I think you would know. Yes, we actually met while we were in high school and went to an automotive college and earned a degree in automotive technology. So I know that our college class was a lot of fun together, but I definitely have memories a lot earlier than high school or college automotive-wise. What about you, Steve? Well, as soon as I was walking, my dad had me going to different car shows all around Colorado, the great state, learning about them. And that's where I fell in love with them. I fell in love with all American cars. I grew up around muscle cars, not this, not all these Hondas and everything. But back when cars were actually cars, where they were muscle and fast and loud. I definitely agree with that. I do appreciate all things automotive, but... I grew up with German cars. I remember my dad's very first project between the two of us was a 1959 Porsche 356. And I learned so much about how cars work, how an engine works, what does what, and it was just a total blast. And see, I didn't work on so many cars as when I was young. We, we had a lot of cars, and that's how I learned about them. Um, we had a lot of muscle cars as far as Mustangs go. We were definitely a Ford family growing up, but we also were into a lot of Mopars. We looked at a bunch of GTXs and Chargers. Before we found the truth, our real muscle car we bought was a 71, 1971 Boss 351 Mustang. And it was a very rare car at that. They only made 1,806 of them. And up until about 2003, 2004, when the Mustang Cobras came out, the Terminators, as they were called, it was the fastest production Mustang in the quarter mile, running a 13.8, which was very, very impressive for that time and time area. So, Steve, tell me more about the 71 Boss. What makes it so rare? Well, besides that it was only 1,806 made, it was also not, the, not everybody's favorite body style. Everyone really liked the 69.70 style fastback. And then when they changed it to 71, it got a little bit different. Um, and people kind of lost interest in it. But, and all, not to mention all the emissions controls started really coming out in the early 70s. But the 71 Boss was still around when the 71 Hemi Cuda was there as a 71 Challenger that had the Hemi. And along with all the other Chevy stuff too, the Camaros, they were all kind of running that. But the Boss was very unique. It was the only year that the Boss 351 was made, and it was the lowest production of that model year. Do you know what number your dad's was? That I don't recall. Um, it was red and black. I do know that. Was it a automatic or a manual? Manual. They were all actually a very good question. There was no option to have an automatic in that car. Um, that was, and the one that my dad has is a very stripped down version, so standard it came with a four speed no option of an automatic you did have options of ac but that one did not have it back in the day you had options of having a console or a console a center console in your car it's interesting that that you had an option of a console yeah you can, know that can you imagine buying a car now that 
where the dealer says, well, you want a center console. And you say, no, I don't want that. So do you remember what year your dad bought that boss? I think I was in elementary school. And in fact, good thing you brought that up there. We were looking at a couple different. We were looking at a, both in the 71 Mustang era. One was a 71 Mustang Mach 1 with a 429 Super Cobra jet. And there's the Cobra jet. There's also the Super so, Cobra hold on. What's the Super Cobra jet? Super Cobra jet rather was, instead of a 428, was a 429. And it was still a fairly rare option at that. And when my dad was actually, he was in Pennsylvania where we bought the car and he called me about it. And I, mind you, I was still in elementary school, but I've been to so many car shows that I kind of under, had a slight understanding of what made cars rare and cool or whatnot. And I told my dad, I said, this is quote unquote, I said, you know, you see Mach 1s at shows and everything, but you never see a Boss 351. And from that moment on, he's, then the next time I actually saw him, he brought that car home. That sounds like a lot of a lot of fun going to car shows with something you just don't see very often. Yes, it got a lot of attention wherever we went. And a lot of people didn't think it was real. But it was. It was a good car. It was a fun car. But we did have to sell it. And unfortunately, parts got so rare for it and costly that, you know, it's tough to take a car out like that. And if you risk getting an accident, you lose everything. You can't rebuild it and you don't have any cost to it. I remember that, that when we went to car shows in high school with you and your dad, your dad would bring it and he would win almost every single time, but he was scared shitless to drive it there because he didn't want to break anything. Exactly. And you, though he hated admitting that he won all these shows, we had... He was modest about it. Yes, modest. Very, very modest at that. But we did sell that one and, you know, we didn't leave the Mustang realm we bought a 2004 mustang cobra something a little bit has more parts of readily available but also a very fun car and very a car that really changed the game back in that 0304 era i mean what other cars came with a factory supercharged v8 with an independent rear suspension and i believe that it still holds a record at the nuremberg track the nuremberg ring for quickest lap time for that style of car so is that a six speed steve it is a it is a six speed T56 with 390, 390 horsepower. Forget what gears are in it though. So, what kind of gears did the boss have comparatively? I know I had a nine inch rear end, and I, it was a 391 gear ratio, actually. That's a great gear ratio, especially for that car. Yeah, especially at this altitude. Yeah, absolutely. So, Steve, why is it so critical to have such gearing like that at an altitude like ours? Well, here in Colorado, we are, you know, mile-high city, mile-high motorheads. We are a mile above sea level. So you do lose, you know, about 15 to 20% a lot of horsepower. Your quarter-mile times do drop by about a second, which is quite a big difference. So you do want that gear ratio to be a little bit lower so your acceleration actually makes up for the difference in your power loss. Well, Steve, what does that, what do those gears do to your top speed? Definitely will lower it a little bit. Yeah. Speaking of top speed, what what makes the 1971 Boss the fastest production Mustang? Well, it actually wasn't even measured by top speed at that time, um, at least for this kind of vehicle. It was actually measured in quarter mile times. And at the top of the list are mostly all Hemi cars, but granted, they also have a 426 cubic inch motor. This is just a 351, but it ran a 13.8 which for that time is very respectable. Keep in mind, there was no fuel injection. It is out of a carburetor at that point. 
Nobody likes carburetors anymore, Steve. Well, they're easy to work on and semi-reliable. Until you get it overcast at the track, and then you run two, three, four-tenths of a difference. Yeah, well, that's part of the game. Understandable. But that's kind of enough about my dad's car. You mentioned your dad had a Porsche, and you said it was a 356. And Porsche does have a lot of random numbers between the 911, the 944, all that other random stuff. What makes the 356 so special? Well, Steve, the 356 was sort of a sort of a turnaround time for Porsche. They did produce a lot of one-off models in the 40s and the early 50s. But the 356 came out mid-50s, late-50s. Well, actually, I'm sorry, take that back. It came out late 40s, early 50s, but they were all called pre-A's. And at that point, they moved on to an A from the pre-A, which was my dad's. And it had a boxer engine, a lot like the VW engines, but it does have some differences. Um, and his was a cabriolet. Cabriolet? This is America. What is what is a cabriolet? A <laughs> cabriolet is a convertible. And it was a lot different. I don't know how it was different. <laughs> well, <laughs> so it didn't have a hard top. Correct. No hard top. Was it a speedster, per se? No, it was not a speedster. The speedsters are actually, right now, worth the most, but when they first came out, they were a lot cheaper because they were a stripped-down version of the regular 356. There was no sound deadening. The soft tops were very basic and very simple with as little metal as possible. You know, but now they're worth upwards of one hundred and fifty to $200,000. No kidding. And where, how'd your dad get his? My dad was given to him as a wedding present from his in-laws. He had always want one, wanted one since he was a kid. And this one was found in a field for $2,500. $2,500. What, what is it worth now? Uh, it's probably worth close to seventy dollars to $100,000. He no longer owns it anymore. That's crazy. And as I recall, Max, you have a Porsche, too. I do also have a Porsche. It's a 1967 912. And it was, I think, my third car. I was about 17 years old when I bought it. And I do still own it, which it mostly just sits right now. Runs great, right? Actually, it has no carburetors on it right now. But there is always a future for projects. There's a lot of good memories in that car. As I recall, sometimes we're pushing it at times. I don't remember any of those times. <laughs> what uh, what kind of projects do you have right now, Steve? Well, uh, I have a well. My first car was an '89 Mustang, and I worked on that one for quite a bit of time. And my parents wanted me to get rid of that car because they wanted me to get something a little more reliable. But being a Ford guy, I had to stick with something Ford. So I bought a '95 Mustang Cobra. But so, Steve, before the Cobra, what did you drive? It was the Fox body. No, before the Fox Body, after the Fox Body. I remember you drove an Explorer, but I thought you were For talking about sure. reliability. <laughs> well, we don't need to mention too much of those. The <laughs> Explorer was reliable for what it was. I do remember the Fox Body, and that was such a cool Mustang. It's too bad you had to get rid of that. Yeah, there's. it's hard to find another car that feels the way that one did. Granted, it wasn't the most reliable car. It was still one of the fun cars that I had. And the new Cobra is definitely a fun car as well, and for the most part it just sits. But, like I said, it is a 95 Cobra, um, last year the 5.0, which that 5 liter was around for quite a long time. It did go through some changes, but very a stout motor for its day. Was there anything different about your 
five liter than other models? Well, the Cobra came with different heads, different cam, different intake, larger fuel injectors, a few different things that made it a little bit quicker at that point. How was it different from the Fox body? Driving wise, like, was it comfier? Was it would, it yeah, it didn't ride so much like a truck. That was one. Did it steer better? You know, I would say the Fox body actually handled, a, in my opinion, a little bit better. The driving this one, it's kind of like a, it feels like a driving a big boat around a track. But this car isn't meant for us, you know, turns. It's more meant for straight line. Sure, most Mustangs are. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> it's no BMW. No, that's very true. What projects are you working on right now? Well, Steve, I still have my very first car, which was a 1972 Toyota Land Cruiser. And it's definitely a project that uh, is going to be around my whole life. I've been tinkering on it since I was 17, 16, even 15 years old. And it was such a cool car to have in high school. I could take the top off and drive it around, and I had 35s on it. And it was just a blast to have. As I recall, it did snow inside of the truck with the hard top on. <laughs> you are very correct. But I was able to look past the small <laughs> issues like that because it was such a fun car to own otherwise. Dealer option. Snowing in the car. Yes. Dealer, Dealer option. option. Yes, absolutely. So that's a little bit about us and everything. This show is going to be sort of like, it's a sort of informative comedy show where we talk about everything about cars um it's obviously really huge in our lives and obviously if i think if you're listening it's probably plays somewhat of a small role in your lives but hopefully you join enjoy it and listen to us more often you know steve and i really decided to do this because we both are so passionate about the automotive industry i myself still work on cars professionally but no longer bmws i work at a 4x4 shop that's been in business for 35 years um, and I get to build everything related to 4x4, and it's a blast. Well, it is fun. You are still in the automotive industry. I got it out. I kind of made it stick to a hobby as myself. I did everything from working on cars to automotive sales. Now it's a hobby. Now I'm in the construction field, but that's not what this show's about. So the whole idea behind the show is Steve and I we're sort of starting to do the same thing day in and day out. And now we kind of wanted to break that up by doing a podcast. And we love to talk about cars and we hope that we can share something that's informative to you guys as well as brings you a little bit of laughter. Especially during the Monday to a week that you're going to really enjoy. Absolutely. At work. Nobody enjoys a Monday. Well, unless you're retired. Sure. Which should be next year for us? Yeah, yes. We'll yeah. be retiring next year about this time. Can't wait. So now that you've learned maybe a little bit about who we are and everything, this kind of brings us to the sort of informative part of our show. Our main informative subject today is mostly going to be about uh, VW Audi Group, also known as VAG, which in my own opinion <laughs> is a terrible acronym. It's going to be their newest recall about the pedal linkage becoming loosened and potentially dislodging causing total function loss of the brake pedal. I'm sorry, I'm still caught up on the whole bag bad situation. <laughs> I personally think it's a terrible acronym, but it's quite funny. Anyways, this is the brake system we're talking about. 
Correct. The petals. Yep. And what exactly happens with the petals that is causing such a stir? Well, they're basically, you know, I think it's it seems to only be on tour eggs and uh, cayennes. So I'm assuming there's no clutch petal. This Most, is 11 through 16, right? Correct. Correct. Most of the articles we've read are very poor on describing exactly what's happening. But what we can decipher is that there's a rod that holds the brake pedal in. And the circlip on one end of this rod loosens up. And the rod might come out and the brake pedal will either fall off or sort of get stuck and not work as intended. Kind of important, right? Oh, extremely important, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, using you your brakes. To, you want to be able to stop. Correct. And go. Correct. So, Max, how many Volkswagen Touareg and Porsche Cayenne models are affected? As far as we can tell right now, the early numbers are around 800 to 803,000 vehicles affected completely. 800,000 vehicles. Pretty big number, if you ask me. In the most recent census, we just kind of found a city that had that many people. San Francisco in 2010 had approximately 805,000 people. And to even go further on that, if you stood every single person chest to ass, given each person was maybe a foot thick, that might be giving a little bit of being a little gracious for some. But if they stood butt to chest, that's like stretching from Castle Rock past Vale, single file, lined up for the dealership to get the car fixed. That is a extremely large amount of people. And a large distance. Absolutely. And it could be further. Because there are states like Alabama and Mississippi, where maybe those people are three foot thick. Absolutely. Now, what would be interesting is, let's incorporate the people who own vehicles that just had a diesel emissions recall, all the TDIs. Oh, the other 500 plus thousand people. Oh, absolutely. So now you're over almost triple the amount. And let's not forget, this might help the distance. Some of the vehicles are affected in the same thing, so you could save a little bit of distance in that way. Sure, sure. Speaking of which, how would you feel if you had a Touareg or a Cayenne with a pedal issue when just less than 10 months ago your car was having diesel emissions issues? How would you feel? Well, hopefully I live in a state where I could re-register it, where it may be pass emissions still. Absolutely. Luckily for Colorado, we don't have statutory vehicle inspections. We can get away with things like that. But other states absolutely won't let you sell your vehicle until the issue's fixed. Definitely California. Yep, California. A lot of states back east. Which I'm sure has a lot of Porsche Cayennes sold. Sure. And they won't even be able to re-register them. So now they're stuck with this hump of steel. Well, mostly plastic. Yeah. Most likely. Most cars these days. And what are the companies doing to help out the consumer? Well, uh, I do have a friend who has been affected by the diesel emissions recall. And he said that he's received a $500 Visa gift card from the dealership, as well as a $500 gift card to parts, accessories, or services from the dealership. So, that's a lot of money for one person. For one person. So, 
if every person affected by this emissions recall, approximately 563000 or so, is given $1,000, that's half a billion dollars dished out, dished out from VW Audi Group. Just Is that from the dealership or Volkswagen Audi Group? That's from Volkswagen Audi Group. Okay. So on top of that, Volkswagen Audi Group is setting aside, because they are being sued for this misrepresentation, they're setting aside $7.3 billion to try to combat this or preparing for a loss. So according to Forbes.com, VW Audi Group is worth, their market capitalization is about $126 billion. So setting aside $7.3 billion is setting less than half of a percent away of their total net worth. I really don't, other than bad publicity, I really don't see this putting a very big ding in their financial situation. And Volkswagen Audi Group is still a very, very large company or group that has plenty of different other little groups in, in them, like Bentley. And what are some other ones? Bugatti. Bugatti. Very large companies. So there's no doubt that they're going to be back. And you're going to still see plenty of Porsches and Volkswagens on the road. And probably still plenty of diesel Porsches and Volkswagens on the road. I definitely agree with that, Steve. They've been around for a very, very long time. And I don't see them going anywhere for a very long time. With that being said, what are your guys' thoughts on this whole Volkswagen Audi Group issue? We would love to hear from you. Our email address is milehighmotorheads at gmail.com. And as well as that, we'd like to definitely get your feedback on how our first podcast went. If you liked it, great. If not, tell us what we can do better. Don't be afraid. The pen can be mighty in this circumstance. Absolutely. And again... Our email address is milehighmotorheads at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash milehighmotorheads. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you have a fantastic week of work. Thanks again. Goodbye.